0: Before we begin, I want you to understand just how seriously I take my responsibility. The mere act of asking a question is the first step on the path to damnation—heresy. The Imperium of Man was not built by those who questioned. It was built on the iron will of the Emperor, in the Orthodox, and above all— obedience. In our Imperium we have a single institution that is pure enough to ask questions, and the Ordos of the Inquisition will now put you to the question. Welcome to 40 Curious, the podcast where each episode, with the help of a guest, we delve into a topic around Warhammer 40,000. This week, I'm joined by Brian Harvey. Brian is a uh, longtime host of SplinterMind and now on Lost of the Nails podcasts, and he's also uh, a hockey defenseman, <laughs> and uh, I can't think of any other reasons why we might have, have, have invited him on.
1: Well, I'm a goaltender first and defenseman second, but yeah, that's probably... Yeah, the hockey thing is probably why I'm qualified to come on here. (laughs) And maybe my day job too, but
0: I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, so you're a history teacher, right? And so for those people who haven't listened to your other podcasts, what is your hobby background in history? What's your passions Mm. in the game? Um,
1: I started around when the White Dwarf, and I dragged it along. I don't need to pull it on camera because that makes for ter- terrible radio, but um, I started around the White Dwarf 127, the original one where they had the, the original thing with Craftworld Eldar and you know all the different aspects and that sort of a thing. Had been playing Road Trader just a little bit before that. But um, yeah, I've been playing 40K mostly uh, since the late 80s, early 90s, something like that, and have just always stuck with the game since Drukari came out in third edition, I've I've always kind of hovered around the Eldar stuff mostly, and played lots of armies like Chaos, Imperial, various factions, and things like that. But once Drukari came out, or Dark Eldar rather, in third edition, it's kind of the contrarian in me. There were people that were talking about how the army wasn't good, and you know, late in third edition, and I was kind of like, oh yeah, you can't win with them. That's the exactly the kind of army that I want to play. And so since then, I mean. Dracari up until about last year pretty much was my main army that I was playing and pretty much how I, how I played through the game. Yeah, most, mostly a 40k player. I mean, I do sprinkle in some of the other, uh, you know, Battlefleet Gothic, you know. But yeah, mostly, mostly 40k related games. I'd say the Blood Bowl. I did, I did dabble in Warhammer Fantasy and did a few armies back in the day. Do play some Age of Sigmar here and there. But mostly I'm around 40k and uh, Horus Heresy Gaming is my main thing now.
0: Yeah, sure. And so you said you picked up Drakari as a contrarian thing, but you don't, mm-hmm. you don't stay with a faction for 20-odd years without it really speaking to you at a deep level. <laughs> so the guys in my
1: local group argue that I have two speeds. So I had been fighting getting into Titanicus for, I mean, it's AT-18, so we're looking at you know almost three, four years that I was able to stave it off. I let the people that I play with choose the legion that I wanted to do and they picked uh, Furians, the Tiger Eyes, because it's a very aggressive army. They joke that I have two speeds with my armies. I either have very brutal and just brave-hearted straight across the field, just very assault-oriented, or the other side that I like, I like, this is a common thing with both, actually, I like really high-risk and high-reward armies, and Drakari have always been that way. I'm gonna argue now they aren't, but previously, up until this last Codex, I mean, they were very much an army that if you knew what you were doing, And you use them. It's a really interesting puzzle to try to solve because they're very surgical. You do a lot of things in the movement. um, But anything that's very glass hammer that punishes you when you use it incorrectly and rewards you when you use them with precision. But also still offers those opportunities to kind of just go full tilt and try to go for it from time to time. And Dracari are just one of those armies that have always kind of had those tools built in them. And you know, with the fifth edition, re you know, the fifth fifth edition reboot, you got even more tools to do those things. You still had to play them kind of smart up up until this edition, and now they're uh, they're they're much more forgiving, I would argue.
0: Sure, they're much tougher than they used to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, cool. But yeah, anytime, anytime there's a there's an army like that where you can play very aggressively, you can play cagey, and you know, it's all about the movement and really trying to make a lot of moving parts all come together. Those those are the type of armies that I tend to stick with long term. You know, like I can go world eater mode for so long before I have to <laughs> And currently I'm I am very much in a chaos chaos sort of mode right now. But um yeah, the the Dracari the Dark City will pull me back at some point.
0: So Yeah. I mean well your current army you're painting is Death God, which couldn't be much more different from Jukari if you tried. I mean in aesthetic mm-hmm. in, in the way they play and pretty much everything about them.
1: Yeah. But the, but the Death Guard, I mean, I talked about this on the last couple of uh, Lost to the Nails episodes. I realized what it was about the Death Guard that made me want to play them. And it really was, I had been in a really bad, bad hobby rut for, you know, over, over a year. And, I, you know, I thought it was pandemic related and all this sort of stuff. And I finally realized, like, towards the tail end of Splintermine, which ended um, about a year ago. I realized towards the tail end of Splintermine that... I wasn't enjoying the army, like the challenge just wasn't, it wasn't scratching the right itch. And then it wasn't until recently that I finally realized in painting Death Guard that it's it was that I felt like there was too much obligation that was going on with Jakari, with if that makes any sense. And also like you can only paint so many paint engines before there isn't any kind of a hobby challenge that's there. And the challenge is what got me into the army in the first place. And so with Death Guard it's really, they're kind of this interesting like from a playstyle standpoint, it makes no sense for me to play them. I don't like slow grinding armies. It's not the way that I play, it's not that I've enjoyed. Even when I played orcs back in the day a lot, it was I was really aggressive with them and went for it versus Death Guard, you have to kind of you just sort of stick around. And you slowly
0: and ooze your way across the battlefield.
1: Yeah, and so I the funny thing is I'm finishing the army just because I'm close enough to the end to actually do it. Which, you know, after having a, a hobby rut for almost a year, feels like it's giving me a win. The other thing is that it's really, it's a very low commitment thing. Like I don't, I can paint something like a, if I'm painting like a Blight Lord Terminators and I decide I'm really not interested in highlight and doing five layers of highlights on all of this, the, the, the teeth, the gut teeth or whatever that they have. I can sort of write it off. And so it's this interesting, like there's a nice challenge in sort of like do painting them in almost like an impressionistic way there uh or an impressionist sort of technique where you're looking at using more color and things like that to imply the disease rather than blotting on actual rust and things like that so you're shading in purples and and magentas and things like that onto green armor it's this kind of like low commitment but interesting artistic thing and it's kind of the low commitment thing of it that you know this is an army that i i feel like i identify with or or are or, or identified as being a person who plays them. And so that kind of low commitment is just in painting through those, it actually started opening up and uh, it, it rekindled my whole hobby love. You know, So that's where the Black Legion army that I'm starting up and all the Titanicus stuff is all kind of slipping in right in the slipstream of that uh,
0: realization from painting an army that I really shouldn't care about. that's amazing I mean part of the reason I always talk about this hobby as being really important to me is because it's not important Mm -hmm. at all right and it's the thing which I do you know I've got I've got commitments I've got family like you and so much of the stuff I do actually matters and yeah the thing I do here is for fun like doing this podcast it's just like I get to sit here I get to chat with interesting people who are passionate about a subject which it doesn't matter if I get something slightly wrong no, yeah. one, you know, like it's no one's. If if I'm a mental health professional, I'm talking on a podcast and I give bad advice, then maybe someone goes and hurts themselves. Right. I mean, if someone listens to us today and gets upset and enough, to you know, kind of, it's just it's not going to happen. You know, they, right. they might disagree with it, me <laughs> entirely, but that's fine. We can have a little argument about it on the internet. That's not a problem.
1: Well, well, I was going to argue that it actually does happen. I mean, it's. Um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, I. I trying to make sure I don't botch this I think it's called Sayers Law um, and it's saying that the passion delivered into a topic particularly in academia is directly inverse to its real importance you know that we get so infighting you know I think people attribute that to Henry Kissinger I think the infighting in academia is so vicious because there's so little actually at stake you know that Sometimes people, people will get fired up about the ideas and things like that. But in the end, you do have to remember, like you were saying, this hob- this is a hobby for our enjoyment. And if you're getting upset about it, you're definitely doing it wrong.
0: Exactly. Yes. And so, you know, it's just lovely to hear you. I mean, I, was, I was a little bit privy to you sort of having this rut and talking about trying to get yourself out of it. And so it's really mm-hmm. great to see you just sort of flying through stuff and enjoying it now. Yeah. And, yeah, the idea that hobbying is some kind of – Obligation is, is definitely something to avoid, I think, long yeah. term. But anyway, we're getting a little bit off topic. Um, <laughs> and we haven't even started yet, so a, it's, it's it's looking good. So the topic today, the subtitle I've got for the episode is The United States of Camorra. <laughs> which is a little bit cheeky, as I'm sure we're going to get to. But the central idea is that the depiction of the Drakari and of their society, is largely, or partially anyway, from depictions of and reactions to things that are happening in the USA. And that's mainly from a literary point of view and a thematic point of view. And I know that that's that's only part of what Dark Eldar are. I mean, they are very definitely the people-snatching fairies of myth. They're also a pirate city. But today we're going to hone in on this, uh, this idea that there are um, elements of the USA that, that uh, go into the makeup. And so I want to first mention this topic to you, Brian. What was, what was your reaction?
1: Well, my reaction was what it always is. Back when I was working on my bachelor's degree, when I went to university... I went in thinking, okay, well, I want to work as a history teacher at some point. I don't know what level I want to teach at. I'm going to need, my, my area of concentration is going to be U.S. history because that'll make me the most employable. And as soon as I got up to the university here, I started gravitating towards all of these courses that I love questions that don't have great answers, that, that really point out inconsistencies in society and also that force us to look at things that we don't want to look at. So sticky questions are sort of, you know, like looking at the Holocaust. There is no not to go top shelf with my example, but you don't look at the events leading up to the Holocaust and say, "Well, A happened, then B happened, then of course C was happened and then D and then obviously the Holocaust." I mean, it could have it could have turned at any point. And I'm I'm the the historian is eluding me right now that had the quote, but it was something along the lines of in studying something like that that doesn't have a definitive answer like the Holocaust, it's like peeling back you know, layers of an onion and you feel like you're gonna get down to, well, obviously then this, and you don't, there's just more tears at every level. And so I ended up focusing on late modern Europe and just because of those types of questions that are hard to reconcile. And so when you mentioned this one, I was like, oh, you were scratching the the Dracari itch, you're scratching my historical curiosity itch, and I, Immediately my brain started going to places where it works and where it doesn't work. And that's where I am so looking forward to this conversation.
0: Great then. Um okay, so I just want to quickly talk about what sci-fi does and what satire does. Mm-hmm. And to me they're very, very closely related. Because in sci-fi, normally what you do is when you look at a, a, a book or, or something like that, you usually take one aspect of society, one thing which is changing. And you extend that out into the future and exaggerate what's going on. And then you examine how society reacts to that, what that does to people who are interacting with it. And that's, one, that's the, the sci-fi side. And the satire side is when you take one aspect of society and you turn it up to 11. Mm-hmm. And then you make it absurd. And I think that Warhammer in general kind of walks that, line on the side of satire most of the time it doesn't have to be funny it doesn't even have to be particularly pointed and i definitely i think as we go through we'll find the sort of the mushiness of the satire is is real it's not it's it's not a book like uh, animal farm where it's very tight and you can say that character there that pig that's trotsky yeah, right. you can, it's right. not that tight and i'm aware i'm being slightly provocative but i feel like we can have a good conversation off the off the back of it and so that's my that was my take is that how you understand satire yeah i mean cuz even going with science
1: fiction i am a outside of 40k i'm a huge science fiction fan and that's the thing is that science fiction won't register or won't be successful unless it is tapping into something that your the, the current audience is relating to you know so if we look at you you can look at different periods of sci-fi um that won't ring as well as it does now. Um, The classics, I'm using finger quotes, the classics tend to be things that deal with these themes. You know, like if you look at like uh, Frankenstein, right? You're looking at this idea of technology. Um, The Frankenstein story won't really ring as well, but during times where we feel like technology has maybe gotten away from us. Like right now, a story like that will ring a little bit more because you have things where, well, look at the digital age, it's amazing. I could download any song I just thought of and, Put a use a, a filter to put kitty cat ears on my head from a photo taken from space. I mean, that's a stupid exaggeration, but we, we have this like tremendous uh, capability, but we haven't coped with how it's changed society and social media and different things like that. And so, yeah, that's very much my understanding. And, and with satire, I mean, I literally pulled up the definition to make sure I was working off the same page here because I'm less of a literary guy, but it's the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule, ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices particularly in the context of com- uh, contemporary politics and other topical issues. So Drukari definitely fit within that. You know, so it it was funny, like when you we were talking about this, I was joking about, oh, man, this might uh, limit my employment in the future. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, given the, the current climate in the U.S., because we're going to get into topics that are things that traditionally come up as we have great upheavals in technology and the economy and society and things like that i mean there are topics that are going to come up that you just you can't avoid um but uh yeah i mean it's clearly these things are taken up
0: to 11 okay then so let's just kick off into the subject then and i think that if we're going to discuss my proposition about the through line that uh, that games watch show often draw on America um, in their depictions of Drakari. I think we actually need to go right back to the old world, in Warhammer Fantasy Battle, because mm-hmm. that's really, when you look at the Dark Elves, the first iteration of Dark Elves into Dark Eldar is more or less a straight port. I mean, you can see pictures of the Witch Elves, and mm-hmm. that those Witch Elves could be Witches. Um, right. They could be sisters of Slaughter from the AOS range. That's like the through line. There is is just is pretty much a straight line, and so much of the stuff that happened in Warhammer Fantasy Battle with the slave raiding, with the you know the 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 emphasis on torture and pain, the factions of the elves, that carried straight through into the initial depictions. Were you into uh, dark elves in Warhammer Fantasy Battle at all? So in Warhammer Fantasy Battle
1: funny enough i started i had avoided dark elves i had painted a high elf army um i did a dwarf army and um what is now Ma tribes it would have been ogre kingdoms back in the day i avoided dark elves a lot mainly because i didn't want to rely on the magic stuff quite as much which is you know i know i bought a high elves army but um I was always interested in them, and they were actually the army that I started purchasing during Warhammer Fantasy Battle 8th edition, because I was like, this is gonna be my 9th edition army, and then Age of Sigmar dropped, of course. So, But I mean, I've always kind of followed them, and I've always been a fan of the models, and those models are probably what primed me for wanting to get into uh, Dark
0: Eldar when they came out in 3rd edition. Yeah, um, and so just to give a little capsule of what they were, in Warhammer Fantasy Battle days is that you had the two main, we'll, we'll leave aside the Wood Elves who were in Europe, um, in, the, well, in, the, in the Old World, so the, the Europe analogue. But in the maps of the Old World, you had the High Elves who were on Ulthuan and you had the Dark Elves who were in Nagaroth, and that was the North American continent. Mm. And their history was of one, one race which had a vicious civil war and then at the end of it, you were left with the rapacious, hideous slavers who were living in the in one area, and you had the um, arrogant, we are better than everyone else, isolationists who were living in the other area. <laughs> and as a 1980s kind of like broad stroke satire, yeah. that's pretty on the nose, you know. At that point, America was very much the cultural leader of the Western world, and and Britain had a big inferiority complex about that. And so the kind of depiction of the High Elves as as sort of arrogant and we're better at you than everything. Right. And it's also <laughs> shiny and new and everything right. looks wonderful over there. Right. You know, there's very, like I say, broad stroke satire, but it's very clearly there. And you also have the slavery, the Civil War with the slavery side um, and mm-hmm. the the Dark Elves there. Um, And I think the interesting thing that we'll come on to is how the with the various iterations of their approach towards slavery with the Drukhari, then it's become more and more about how you strip away any myths that slavery can be a benevolent or not totally evil institution. And the Dark Elves were very much, we're going to put you in pots of blood and boil you to death. And there wasn't any particular reason or rhyme to that. That was just what they did. Right. Um and so so I think that you set up with this very clear broad strokes satire, and then you have the rogue trader going to forty K and the initial representation of, of Eldar as a whole, not just Dark Elves or Dark Eldar, was as this corsair type that they were slave raiders, they would appear, they would snatch things. So it was very much more that pirate image. Mm -hmm. But then you get the introduction of Drakari, which you said was in third edition, right? Right. And so do you want to talk to us a little bit about how they were depicted in that and what the models were like, what their society was described like? Man, I
1: promised I wasn't going to get see shiny things and wander off into the woods. But when you were talking about, just just to go back to the Warhammer thing for just a second, a, a thing that hadn't occurred to me before was that looking at the differences between the two, when you were sort of talking about the, um, I I never really thought of them in this light, but when you think about, they're both known as races that have very powerful magic in the game. The high elf magic is always really defensive. The dark elf magic is always really offensive. And it was just interesting because I was just thinking like, the magic is sort of like how they project their power. You know, so if you're looking at high elves as being, well, we're using this magic and we're, we're manipulating things, but we're doing it in defense it kind of plays into that whole noble cause thing that they're going for versus uh if you're looking at the dark elves as the u.s you know we're using uh, the satirical um depiction of the u.s you know using their projecting their power for you know their own sort of uh needs rather than some sort of big uh noble cause or that kind of a thing so it was uh it it, that just hadn't occurred to me before it was kind of interesting thinking on that but yeah that's a
0: really interesting point and it it sort of sparks as where we're already depicted departing from the depiction of Drakari as the USA. It's of aspects of American history. You're talking about the dark side and the light side of American history in that particular, or or two different historical interpretations or or portrayals of America, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it was when they were introduced in third edition, it's funny because um,
1: we had like a little hobby meeting where we were kind of talking about this and you were taking notes and things like that for what directions to go into. And I, the thing that struck me the most was I kept pulling out things going, well, wait a minute, at what point did they backfill that part of the story in? And when you look at the third edition book, I mean, they're very much just viewed as, they're just these raiders that pop out. They're evil for the sake of being evil. They, you have like a little bit of the societal structure where you, have the, you can have a witch cult army um, they're supposed to be these gladiators that are doing their thing, um, their gladiatorial games. There's even a game that shows up in the White Dwarf thing that was um, Arena of Blood, for any of you old-timers that remember that. And it was a game, and I, I thought that was hilarious. In, back in the old Splintermine days, when we interviewed uh, uh, Gav Thorpe when he was discussing how the the person that in the Jane's R book that does the uh, do-you-know-who-I-am sort of name-drop thing, and I won't give away what happens to him, that was the name of his character when he played that game when he was writing it but uh it doesn't end well for him i'll just leave it at that but but when you looked at it you had like sort of the weird okay we have the beast masters that's that's very much a nod to the dark elf stuff you have the 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 witch cults that's very much a nod to the witch elves you have the kabbalite warriors which are very much the you know regular rank and file dark elf warriors but you, you know archons which sort of represented the tyrant type uh, characters and things like that but you really didn't have the they were really missing that sort of like fantastical um evil fairy tale element you know because they had magic which just wasn't included um they just made the argument that they don't have psychers and kimura for some reason uh, and you were just given this impression that they were evil for the sake of being evil and it really isn't until the 5th edition codex where things get fleshed out and we start to see what the society is and the sort of the reason for their uh, need to torture and all these things are sort of backfilled in.
0: Yeah, sure. So we're talking really very much a straight port of a lot of concepts only removing the magic element.
1: Yeah, which is a curious one looking back now given if they're doing the straight port, and that might have just been them trying to give legitimacy to it, trying to avoid the squats thing, you know, of having... Duplicating armies. These are space dwarves, you know, like, and having to reconcile any weird questions of why are space dwarves riding motorcycles, you know, so...
0: (laughs) Well, by that stage, the the craft world Eldar and the Harlequins were already reasonably well-established. They'd been around for a while. So by bringing another Eldar faction into the game, you've got to say, what do they do that these guys don't on the field um, and in their background you've got to distinguish them so I think that that does sound very much like a game decision or a, and a differentiation from fantasy battle because again although the, the craft world do bring over elements of the high elfness of it you talked about White Dwarf 127 before where that's a really well fleshed out entire world and the response to the fall and, and the discipline. I mean, that's, there's elements of the of the High Elf background in there, but they're also very distinctive and very cool in their own right. And Dark Eldar, at that point, really don't have much. But in that third edition um, Codex, I think you are saying that um, they did have some named characters, right? So this is the first appearance of Azrable Vect. Right. And I think he is a really, really crucial piece of evidence and, and for this discussion is that Asdrubalvec from day one was the evil overlord who'd got there he'd pulled himself by up by his bootstraps and he was even then he was he was described as as lowborn or vat grown wasn't he and I know there's nuance to that which you'll come to later but in that depiction to me the fact that Drakari don't have inherited nobility that the archons well, because they're essentially immortal, they scrap and they fight their way up. And there's a sort of insane meritocracy to them. And that, to me, if we're looking at Drukhari as this um, dark mirror of the Amer- of America, then you've got that. That's the inverse of the American dream, right? And the that whole idea that you can be born into poverty and through virtue raised to become president. And I do feel that that's another fairly on the nose piece of satirical intent there.
1: Yeah. Oh man, I'm like chomping at the bit, trying to not go into my Vect thing. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, we're, is we're that still coming in the, in the fifth edition, or uh... yeah. Okay. yeah, we're
1: still in the overview phase. Let's not dive into that one yet. Okay. Have, sure. Uh... <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, Vect is an interesting character because when he's put out, he's the first, unless I'm really missing something, the first like vehicle special character. And I mean, his, the projection of his power is, this is a guy who doesn't even get off of the dais, right? He just cruises around in this thing. It is, it is hot rodded. It is the symbol of all of his power, right? So it's the, yeah. the, the speed advantage that Dark Eldar definitely used to have in third edition. They were the fastest army by far on the table, even over Craftworld Eldar. Um, it's a speed advantage, there's a technological advantage. It was a vehicle that fought in close combat pretty well Um, so it is so it it does work that is one of the things when you look at u.s especially with the tail end of the 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 cold war um, when you look at like uh, u.s projection of power and hegemony i mean it's really about the technological advantage i mean the closing of world war ii is you know here's an atomic bomb and then you know there's a sort of standoff with the u.s and the soviets over nuclear armament but it's always the that technological element and projection of power in that way. So you don't have the Dark Elves using magic as their offensive thing, but you have their, their weaponry sort of being, um, even though it really looks like Craftworld Eldar, but it's, it's really that's where their, their technological advantage comes from and kind of the element of surprise, which falls off a
0: little bit. Well, I and mean, the web way, to an extent, means that they just appear wherever they want to be. There's True. They, don't see, they don't appear to be logistics to it. Um, yeah. And certainly, if if you look at the way the US waged war with the super carriers um, and so on, it's like power projection. It's like they would appear off your coast with a, a carrier battle fleet, and suddenly the entire balance of power changes in 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 an instant. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and you know, one of the things about about the US in in the first second world wars and all subsequent wars has been that it it's never been attacked directly. Right. Um, you know, most of Europe has the experience of being rolled over at least once, and probably twice within a couple of generations. Right, and so the idea of Camorra sort of as this city outside of space, outside of time, it was essentially you can strike out of it, but your armies are not expecting to have to fight on your own turf. Mm-hmm. And so that raiding idea again—that this power which can appear where it wants and do what it wants.
1: Right. ...without having to take a, a punch back at home. Yeah I, I, yeah, I could see how that would work. Interesting.
0: Okay, so I think we're heading towards the 5th uh, edition now, because, as you were saying, this, the pickings are fairly slim in the 3rd edition book as to how Dracari society is depicted, and there's not a huge amount to it. As we said, it's, it's more or less a port over. So 5th edition is where the modern Drakari are born, Right. Yes. That's if the through line from there to now, to now is, is there's been some changes, some developments, but essentially the whole thing was there. So, do you want to talk us through a little bit about what the fifth did with the models, with the society? Yeah, over to you for the next, I mean, I don't know 45 minutes or so. <laughs> well,
1: I'll try to keep it under 45. So, the interesting thing is, I always view the way that we're presented with the Eldarian general sort of as the way that you would, thinking from like the skirmish tabletop game, you know, somebody out on the frontier, what would your exposure to Eldar be? It's probably going to be Corsairs, right? Because they're the only ones that are going to show up. As they start to go into a more army-sized base game, you're going to run into things like Craftworld Eldar uh, because their interests just aren't going to show up on some backwater world for no reason. Um, And then when you look at Dracari, like the way that they're first presented It's, you know, part of it was just that they hadn't fleshed it out, but the whole idea that they're raiders, they show up, they they murder a bunch of stuff, they drag you off, you don't want to go back with them, Uh, just terrible things happen. So they sort of have that, you know, monsters attacking for the night thing. Well, in 5th edition is where Jess Goodwin really was able to sort of flesh out, almost like in a White Dwarf 127 way, why the Jakari are doing what they're doing. Because monsters that do things just because they're evil are really boring and this is where he introduces this bit and this is where this is where Dracari actually become fascinating to me because you get into this whole idea of relative morality because their their torturing isn't for the sake of torturing things their torturing is it's more akin to eating if that makes any sense so it's they are the, the suffering actually is helping to replenish the little bits of their soul that are draining off constantly. I mean, Jess Goodwin described it as having a, a bucket and there's a little pinprick of a hole and you just kinda, of, Slaanesh is constantly siphoning little pieces of your soul off. And the way to refill it and to rejuvenate yourself is to uh, experience the suffering of others. And so all of a sudden it makes what they're doing so much more interesting other than, well, they split off from the Eldar and are, Uh, just doing evil things for the sake of doing evil things
0: and oh I can't wait for you to listen to the other episode about the elder we've already recorded because that was with uh, Dan who was the 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 Swedish moral philosopher and he was talking about this in wonderful ways Um, yes yes I haven't even started editing yet that one yet but (laughs) I'm, I'm really looking forward to sending that one to you
1: Right, and, and again, in my whole, I'm a history teacher, so I'm a very much a generalist. I'm going to stay in the shallow end with this stuff and not try to <laughs> drown in the deep end where where I'm sure Daniel took it. So, But you, you run into this whole interesting thing where it, it's a much more compelling story. Um, the, the idea of the witch cults, it's not just that there are arenas where they are torturing and doing things. It's that they sort of flesh out Camoran society a lot more, where you have these games that are used as a way of the masses sort of getting to get their fix as far as suffering and these sorts of things. And it's, you know, I mean, it, it alludes to Rome a little bit, you know, with the gladiatorial games, but it's a way of holding the masses in check, a way of keeping the whole economic and political system of Kimura in check, and keeping it in homeostasis. Uh, they bring in the covens, which I know when you were on um, a Splintermind episode in, God, that would have been early in the pandemic in 2020 when we were doing like weekly episodes. Yeah. Um, that was where I brought up the idea that, I remember you asked me the question of why do I play Covens? And I, I mentioned that with Covens, there's this really interesting blue collar sort of mentality to them. You know, where it's just their job is very much, it's interesting, I mean, they are the infrastructure of Kimura that keeps it working. You know, like they have to do yeah. all the modifications. If you need soldiers, you know, you bring back a toe. I'll bring back your warrior, whatever the thing is. Um, they All these sort of vat-born, um, non-true-born types are where they come from, um, their their technology is introduced and the technology, the the Jess Goodwin videos, the round table where they're talking about this with Phil Kelly is just absolutely fascinating where they're saying that the technology is, it appears arcane, it appears like it's actually magic and so it really brings in this, um, uh, just sort of nightmare creature thing that plays in so well with their coming in um you know bursting from the webway, taking what they need and leaving so it makes sense why they don't stay why they don't they don't keep outposts and things like that because in real space you're experiencing real time you know it's kind of like in the black legion no- novel where they burst into real space for the first time and there's this, this you know Zangor that looks at the, at, at the main character and just says pain and he's like, oh yeah, you're feeling time right now. You know, <laughs> like people just aren't <laughs> yeah. used to doing it. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a really, it, the, way that they, the way that they fleshed it out though, really brought in, a, again, that it brings up the whole thing that I don't believe they're actually evil. I don't think that they're doing evil in order to, in order to, uh, evil requires intent and the intent to commit harm for the sake of harm versus I'm eating. Like are you a Dracari torturer if you go and eat a hamburger? You know, like something had to die for that. So it, to me, that's this is where the Dracari get fleshed out and they also just become legitimate villains because, yeah. they're, a, because they're amoral villains, if that makes sense. Because Amorality frees you up to do a lot of things
0: and this is the one of the reasons i think that they have become so compelling now is that before they are the, this this force from outside who come in they take you they torture you you don't want to go but their motivations are a bit like the fairies in 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 um in mythology right they're fairly obscure and that makes for a great film or a great episode where you can see that happening but in order to have longevity as a faction, you've got to have an internal motivation. Mm-hmm. And this is where the fifth edition is, is, that instead of the protagonist being human and the drakari doing something to them, suddenly you're moving over and in that codex they are the protagonists and they have their internal motivations, they have their reasons, their societies. And looking at it more and more, um, this is what I'm finding so fun, is delving into those motivations, there's uh, an episode coming up on the Necrons, which I had I'd always skidded off the outside of Necron law. They they they'd not really appealed to me or spoken to me at all. Right. And then in investigating how they come to be yeah. And the process by which they are where they are and, and actually what Games works have done with the law, it's there's some really quite profound and interesting stuff in there. Oh, and are, suddenly I love the collection.
1: They are fascinating when you dive yeah. in. Really, really great
0: yeah anyway that is definitely a tangent um so (laughs) right so into this the um the fifth edition codex so we're talking about Kamora. it's a city which is larger than a solar system you've got the sub realms and this is where i want to talk about go back to the old sci-fi and how sci-fi is a reaction to society now in the early 90s we were in the point where American thinkers were genuinely writing books like *The End of History*, because America was the unchallenged hyperpower. They call you know that phrase was used. There was, there was almost this idea that there was this is the end point that there's no, there's nothing beyond us. Sci-fi is always going to work with that, with with the situation you're in now, and the cyberpunk movement in sci-fi was very much concerned with America because at that point America was at probably the apex of its cultural and military power. It was totally unchallenged. Um, do you know much Cyberpunk? Is that some of the sci fi you've read?
1: Not much of the sci the not much of the sci fi that I've read. Um, gaming wise, yeah. I mean obviously it sprinkles in the games and you know I I've been sort of
0: adjacent to it, but not not really diving in myself. Sure. So um You've got the um, the imagery. I mean, so that's the easiest place to go is in mm-hmm. stuff like Blade Runner, The Matrix, Neuromancer. Those are the kind of the the classic touchstones in image-wise. It's there's a lot of black leather. There's a lot of um, a lot of uh, mirror shade sunglasses. Um, there's a lot of like scare quotes cool imagery, but that you can see that's a new strand in the um, in the drukari line in that fifth edition codex you've got the reavers who are very much the neon bikers you've right. got the hellions who in the previous editions were um were more or less just warriors on skate on the on the skyboards but in the fifth edition reboot they become dirty street gangs that they, they've got ripped jeans and ripped leathers and they've got punk hairstyles they've got right. grinning teeth they do graffiti on their boards and stuff like that this is very much a cyberpunk trope is you have these continent spanning cities and at the top in their towers you have the powerful and they're doing their machinations and then you've got this broad triangle both in the cities and in the metaphor of their societies where you've got down at the bottom these gangs fighting over the scraps and that's very much how kamara is is um, portrayed in the fifth edition stuff um and you've also got the the power the political powers being with corporations rather than politicians in cyberpunk you've got very there was a, a, a sort of cyberpunk game called corporation which was literally where um, you you took the reins of a company and sent assassination squads and kills, and so there's no police force or law courts. The city, the um, the corporations have their own powers, and if you're in them, you're in you're protected by them, and if you're not, there'll be in, uh, industrial espionage and so on and assassinations. And again, if you look at Camorra in the way that they work in the it works with with the wars between the high houses and stuff you see that you see that fairly distinctively as well and i do realize that that is taking something which is a already a sci-fi depiction of one thing and then translating it over so there is quite a lot of of rough edges around this but i do think that it's it's a fair comparison to be made because otherwise where does this cyberpunk look come from why is it inserted
1: right right well, and the interesting thing, too, is that if you view, especially with the fifth edition, when you start looking at the different households and all those sorts of things, this is where when you mentioned the Kamora as a satire for the United States, this is where my brain sort of went. Um, and that's mostly due to the, um, in, in history, my me leaning towards economics and sociology a little bit more. It's interesting that the the Archon's the cabals really read more like corporations because you need to have all these different alliances. You need to have supply chain issues sort of freed up. It isn't just that there's a Camoran army that gets its things. Each of these are their own sort of like independent households and, and corporations. And you even have the sort of like lower rung ones, right? If you read the Andy Chambers book, uh, one of the satellite realms was it was, this was supposed to be some house that had kind of fallen and it was like an entire planet that basically just had these kind of like fish-like creatures, right? So they're but they're they're under the service of another uh, uh, cabal or whatever it is to do, to do their thing. But it's interesting. I think this is where some of the parts actually fall into line a little bit as far as like trying to make it a satire of the U.S. Because you have when we're looking at the the economic part of it, so there there is this is where I'm just going to break, I'm going to break the seal and go into the Vect thing (laughs) that we were talking about, because, so here's the thing. And as a historian, you always look at, you have to look at sources, right? Because sources are, you are sourcing is, is key to understanding anything. Our evidence is all interpreted. So you have to evaluate the sources. Yeah. 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 The biggest thing is where do we have the idea that Vect was, some gutter punk who just clawed his way to the top because he is so much more capable than everybody else. We have it from him, right? The Torturer's Tale, the original story that was in the third edition codex, and he's telling this to some person, and you know, seemingly so he can drive him mad and do this, but let me just pose a question. What if he actually wasn't? What if he actually wasn't, and this is where something with the United States that I think actually plays in fairly well is that when you go to the origins of the United States um, and look at various region reasons for immigrating to the original colonies, here you do have. There's a weird mixture of you have you know the sort of puritanical the Puritans going to the north, you know where you have this um, where in the culture today you see the sort of glorification and you know on the Protestant work ethic, right? That you work hard and this is how you show you're worthy and these sorts of things. But we also have this kind of battling. Um, within Protestantism, we do have the problem of and attitudes of Calvinism and predestination that leak their way in. And there's an interesting thing in the U.S. where with predest- the, the, I, I'm I'm going to really shrink this down. With Calvinism and predestination, there's this idea that you don't earn your salvation through works, through good works and these sorts of things. There's this idea that the chosen have already been chosen by god you know so by definition predestination is sort of the rule of the day so success is viewed as an indicator of that favor if that makes sense. so it's virtuous
0: in itself right
1: yes is that you you wouldn't be in in a society where 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 a society that is good and living by god's laws you wouldn't have people that were successful unless they were virtuous and they were Sort of um, were chosen by God, and so you do have. I mean, in this country today, if you look at um, uh, with people identified as Christians, I mean, usually the number. I mean, you'll see different studies here and there, but the, about fifteen to to twenty percent um, of people identify with this whole this whole idea of the of a prosperity gospel. You know, meaning that if you by giving to the church, um, God is going to return this um, tenfold over. You know, so it isn't just a tithe for, you know, showing your your devotion or whatever, it's that God will actually favor those with um, with financial reward. And so it's interesting to me that when we look at on one hand it's easy to it's you look at the 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 cabal, the cabals are all written as um people that are the most capable and have worked their way up, but it's really hard to start at Hellion level and work your way up to the upper spires, right? If you're starting in a household that already has influence, it's easier to work up. And this isn't some sort of a, you know, injecting Marxism thing. This is just simply how it works. I mean, some, of the, some people that we venerate um, for their achievements, I mean, you can look at something like, I mean, when we were talking before, I was using the Elon Musk example. You know, I have a lot, I, there are a lot of people that will we will talk about uh, SpaceX and talk about, well, look, here's a person who didn't have government subsidies or uh, government wasn't involved and they've made this more efficient space plat- uh, platform for launching things into space. And this isn't to take away, because I mean, it is, a, it is a hell of an achievement. But when this wasn't a person that was starting as a person who was flipping burgers in a McDonald's, you know I'm saying? Like you're coming from a family that has resources to sort of prop it and keep it going. And so it's an interesting thing and it sounds like a Marxist take again, but within Camoran society, one of the means of control is actually the possibility and the aspiration that you could be in those upper spires.
0: Yeah, and dangling, dangling the possibility and the carrot there is very potent <clears throat> because it means that you're the the, the most driven of that underclass might be more motivated to try and be successful within the structure rather than Mm trying to overturn the structure right Uh, and that's the, the i think that's one of the powerful things about the american dream it's saying that it's saying that within our society we have constructed it so that the virtuous the most virtuous the best of us can succeed and whether that's true or not that's a potent image and that really is one of the sort of the greatest mythological successes of america
1: yeah and it and it is one of the it is one of the glaring inconsistencies that we have if you look at within this country is that you have people that want to support uh, especially with like trickle down policies um, lower taxation for higher groups tend to be people that will benefit the least in the short term from them at least Uh, i mean if the theory of Having freeing up capital in the top, you know, one to five percent allows them to invest and create companies that will have jobs that will do it. That's that's the idea that's behind it. But um, when you look at people that in areas where um, prosperous areas tend to vote a little more liberal, where they're supporting tax tax policies that don't benefit them, if that makes any sense, like they're supporting yeah. more government programs to do these sorts of things, and so it's. It's interesting though that that is one of the things that sort that is put out there as well. This is why we need to lower taxes, even though you might. There there might be some sort of a an aid benefit or those types of things that are that are done. Is that the? It's part of it is the, the push or the like you were saying the American dream. This idea that you can work and one day be the person that's up in the towers. If yeah. that makes any sense, um, like you mentioned, like it's it's. It's a necessary element in order to help maintain control.
0: Yeah, and in Kamora, we have this this message that this is where he came from, from his own lips, and mm-hmm. that in itself, I think that's a very intentional decision by the game designers. That's not something that just happened by accident. Right. Or, I in my previous uh, career before I became a massage and sports therapist, I worked in publishing, mm-hmm. and um, so I worked with a lot of people who were in the process of editing books and sometimes authors go have something and it works fantastically well and you go where did you come up with the idea and they said well i don't know it just it just sort of worked it the idea came to me and it just fitted right and i didn't analyze right. it any further than that and that's where you know literary criticism actually goes but your the wheels in your head were turning that your unconscious mind fitted it in and it fit perfectly but that didn't mean that you just came up with it randomly right, right. and so i do think that This idea of of Vect being this lowborn, a potentially lowborn propaganda lowborn who then rose up to the very heights is powerful kind of piece of evidence that there is an intentional aspect to this um, satire on America.
1: And it also helps with this projection of power too because if you are from a noble household or, well, I say a noble household, you're from an established cabal, um, let's say you're multiple generations in. Um, I mean, because when they when they talk about that's the thing that we have to remember is that when they talk about these these assassination schemes that are like you know 500 years in the making, where they try to come up with these ultra elaborate kills and things like that for the spectacle of it. I mean, this all sounds like nobility, right? I mean, only the nobility would come up with that sort of a thing. Versus if you're at the street level you wait till the person's walking out of their favorite, you know, restaurant or bar or whatever the thing is and you slash their throat right like so there is i mean the 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 cabals of camora are it's very much implied i mean the, it, it is a type of nobility even though it's it's presented as a meritocracy yes
0: and it's but it's in interesting. america you've got quite a few aristocracy like families I mean you do about the Rockefellers and and Mm -hmm. the uh, the Walmart family right what are their names is is that are they actually Walmart uh
1: no they are the oh boy I am gonna blank here Waltons that's it. the Walton family Yeah. yeah so so that's the trick is that I mean when you look at like the Walton family I don't I don't know theirs quite as much but that's you know a few generations in versus you know the Rockefellers which are you know pretty well established and in um but vect presenting this image as the you know scrappy more clever than everybody you know clearly superior in his uh, scheming and ruthlessness and all these sorts of things that helps to hold the noble houses in, in check if they honestly believe that because they're looking at it saying well look at the way society's structured you're pretty unlikely to go from hellion to archon in any kind of a compa- in any sort of a reasonable way like the, the people the the examples that you would hold up and sometimes that's the thing that will that will that will happen here in the U.S. too is like we'll hold up an example of well here was a kid who was born in the inner city and now look he's the you know secretary of some sort of a department and you're like okay for every one of those though how many kids can we point to that didn't make it like that you know so it's again this goes back to that the dream is the carrot that's dangled to help sort of keep you in check along with all of the other things that society is offering you like, hey, come to the games that are put on by your, your patron cabal and all of uh, you know the, the spectacles that are used to kind of get people to get their fix, you know, so that they're not looking to to get it themselves in other ways.
0: Not to give too much of the game away, but going back to the episode on morality, one of the things about um, Comoran society is if we're looking on the ultimate aim of the societies to escape from Slaanesh, and that's... That's the way they've organised themselves in Camorra. For the few, you have a practically eternal escape because of the homunculus uh, ability to reclone them from fingernails or whatever. You know, there, there is essential right. immorality. Immorality? Immortality. Freudian slip there. Immortality <laughs> for the very highest. And then for the rest, for the people who are just around the arenas, They don't even try. There's no there's no attempt to keep them alive. Your average fat grown warrior, let alone your hellion gangs. While in the craft worlds, there's an attempt always to save everyone. But that attempt is is essentially it's holding it's staving off the inevitable rather than an, an, an actual escape, because. We know that soulstones get broken, I mean, constantly. Sure. In the, in sure. the stories, you know, <laughs> yeah. if a soul stone appears, the chances it'll be broken by the end of the story are <laughs> pretty high. Really high. And and so although the craft worlds are trying to save everyone, they're not necessarily achieving it, while the, the Dracari don't even don't even bother trying a lot of the time. Right. So, yeah, I just want to sort of bring that up as a, as a slightly different take on the way, which comes to very much the same conclusions, though. Yeah. So
1: the, man, talk about the 800 pound gorilla in the room. The slavery issue I think is really, is a really interesting take and there's, there's places where it works and places where it falls apart. But to me, it always sort of falls back to that internal contradiction that happens with the really, like I was mentioning the friction with uh, puritanical Protestant work ethic and Calvinism and these sorts of things. Slavery Slavery in Camorra is a place where it might work on the surface because the U.S. had slavery, obviously, and was much later to throw it off than they were in the U.K. But where I think it's really interesting is looking at as a history teacher, I always have to look at and it's it's a tricky thing to teach, especially in this day and age and the political climate in this country. Because, I mean, I live in an area, uh, geography matters when it comes to where you teach in the United States i'm on the west coast i am in santa cruz county this is one of the more left-leaning areas you know so we don't have the same types of of debates that they have in some other areas where they're really getting stuck on uh critical race theory and these sorts of things
0: and well and it's not historically an area which even had people in when slavery was a thing so you don't have that historical actual buildings where slaves were kept yeah,
1: we don't, we don't have that here, but in that, and that's where it's interesting is that it's an easier topic. I mean, and I say easy, I mean, relatively easier because it's an extremely difficult topic to teach about here in the West Coast because we don't have as much, but we do have the history of, you know, Spanish colonization in California. You know, when you look at like the Spanish encomiendo system, it, let me back up. There is a tricky thing with slavery that Dracari get to avoid entirely. In America, and this and issues of race and slavery are something that always pop up again around when we have these big um, economic and technological upheavals. So, I mean, you, you can you can set anytime you look at it, this is where okay, this is the digital age. This is where we have a new class of money and a new class of economic power shifts. Race is always going to be something that pops up as as an issue, and the slavery question always come up. And there's always these interesting attempts to go back and frame slavery in a different light. And this is where historians, to me, historiography is as much, if not more interesting. Uh, and this is where the sociology thing comes in. If I read a book written about the Roman Empire in the late 1800s, it's going to tell me more about the late 1800s and their attitudes and the sources that they go to. Uh, there was a book, and I remember from my undergrad for my senior thesis, there were, one of the books that was was chucked my way was um, E. H. Carr's um, "What Is History," and if you look at "What Is History," he wants E. H. Carr goes through and gives us this, this thing, and he very much gives credence to this idea that history is predictable, right? That the events will always lead to a, a, a conclusion, and when you look at it, it's because he was a he was um, a hard left leaning person that I mean he wrote a 25 volumes book basically like justifying Stalinism if that makes sense so so if you are if you are a Marxist you need history to make sense you can't have this idea you know like we always say those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it or whatever variation you're going to do on it well every single person in political office took a history class at some point being an attorney is in the U.S. especially is the 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 most common job when you look at representatives that we have, and they all studied history and government at some point and yet are still able to make the same mistakes. But if you are a Marxist, you need, because within Marxists there are these very rigid things that this step happens, then, you know, the proletariat games. Yeah, it's the inevitable march of history. You know, and then you get wacky ideas with Lenin, who's like, well, maybe we can just, like, telescope that and just collapse it all down and just do it all right now. But, But with historiography, there's, like, it really tells us about... For historians, it says more about the time that they live in, but our own relationship with the past tells us more about ourselves now than it did then. And so when you're looking at the way that we try to look at slavery, I mean, there have been attempts to try to sanitize the the American Civil War in that it's a fight over states' rights. You know, it's all about um, self-determination. It's all about uh, stifling the urge to federalize and have centralized control and, you know, keeping it local and yah yah yah. Well, I mean, the truth is, yeah, individual
0: liberty, that through line into modern conservatism.
1: Right, but the, the interesting thing is, whenever I have somebody that really tries to make that argument, I always say, so, okay, I'll grant you that it's states' rights, but what was the states' rights issue that they were fighting over? <laughs> yeah. And it was the right for, I mean, because when you look at it, this is a question that America's had to, had to wrestle with. I mean, Louisiana Purchase, in, you know, in the early 19th century, that starts forcing, and the industrialization that happens in the North, Um, Starts to create this pressure where you have an economic pressure and you also have a moral pressure because within that you know during this time period too you have like the second great awakening where there's you know religious pressures that start popping up and then they deal with the series of failed things like the wilmot proviso compromise of 1850 and these ideas of popular sovereignty and kansas nebraska act where they break all the rules they had from the missouri compromise like it's just a train wreck that they've had but there's always this there was always this difficult question of how do you justify this? If you live in a country with Christian values, how do you justify slavery? It's an impossible task to do without doing some mental gymnastics that will, you know, do things that even you can't do in your profession of uh, <laughs> being a physical therapist that you can't, you can't do because you have, and the Spanish wrestled with this too, where you have the encomienda system was set up in a way where you're trying to rationalize forced labor and changing the culture of people so the encomienda system was set up to where if i am the spanish crown i give a person encomiendo, they have a grant basically to control a land all of the native population there your duty is to civilize them your duty is to introduce them to christianity to make sure that they aren't going to fall back to
0: their vices and savagery was the view yeah which is very much the same idea as as british muscular christianity where we we would go out and and it would be the duty to bring civilization and christianity to these savages
1: and this is the interesting thing is where in the american south i try to emphasize this to my students because even within these really tricky times of trying to teach about current events and then applying history you know i mean i've had parents come in and, and they've watched a lot, of, they, clearly they've watched a lot of news and they're really upset and they, they'll they ask a question like, do you teach critical race theory in, in your classes? And I, the thing that I always do is just ask them, can you explain to me what critical race theory, what do you mean by crit- critical race theory? And they'll just trip over themselves because it's sort of this push that happens. And it isn't because I teach critical race theory. When you're teaching history in the United States, it's impossible to do it without looking at slavery and the outcomes and issues that pop up from this. But getting back to the Spanish, in the United States with slavery, always had a problem reconciling that and doing the mental gymnastics that you needed to do in order to justify it. And both of their system, their answers look very similar. When you look at the Spanish here in California in the Southwest and Mexico, South America, the laws of Burgos were passed in, oh, I'm blanking 15. It's in the early 16th century. And the laws of Burgos are viewed by most historians as one of the first human rights sort of documents period and it's this idea that well it's still viewing them in this lens almost like they're children that need to be taken care of but you can't beat them you can't call the it specifically says you can't call them dog you have to refer to them by their own name and all these sorts of things and the spanish crown was able to just kind of you know okay see look we were trying to bring morality and they're trying to sanitize this thing when in the end it really was a form of of slavery on that. And you have that in the United States too, where my, my students are always like, at first like wanna push back when they read things on this and then they go, oh, wait a minute, this actually makes sense. Racism is a necessary component for slavery to work because if you view a slave as another human being who has free will, who has all these things, you like, if you're, if you're a Christian and you say, this is, this is a person who is my equal, you can't do it. But if you if you're sort of able to twist it and take this paternalistic view, that well you're doing it because left to their own, and this is what the Spanish were saying, they're just going to go back to their they're going to go back to their and hobbles. they'll be damned
0: for eternity.
1: They're going to be damned for eternity, and you know it's your duty to try to try to civilize them, and like you are you are providing guidance for them, and you are providing for them because they aren't capable of providing for themselves, and so that's one end of the control that is put out by it. On the other end of it is when you see people that aren't plantation owners. Because when you look at the South in America, the vast majority of people are not plantation owners. It wouldn't have been a sustainable system, if so. But the main thing, one of the main reasons why racism was a necessary component in the South was that poor whites would have related far more to black slaves if they they were able to have conversations and if they were able to look at them as far as like their position within the South. Because if you weren't a plantation owner, the economy of the South just didn't have industry like they did in the North. Yeah. And so it's it's this whole interesting thing where it's kind of this, uh, sometimes morality is presented in the United States as being like this kind of Kantian, like categorical imperative. Like if it's wrong to do something, it's always wrong to do it. But in the end, we're all utilitarians at some point, which I'm sure Daniel will probably ar- could argue with me and shoot me out of the water here. But at some point it becomes inconvenient for us to apply our morality and we we all draw the line like we'll all say that murder is completely wrong but at a certain point you're like well but what if you could go back and like kill hitler you know and people to try to get out of answering that question will say something along the lines of well we don't know if somebody worse would have come along and it's like well wait a minute no you aren't
0: arguing that murder is wrong in that case and so it's a good point you're talking in great depth from an American perspective on slavery, yeah, and yeah. it shames me because I said, "Oh, you didn't have settlers who had slavery over on the west coast," and you're like, "Actually, they did, and this is how." <laughs> so, so I'm I'm feeling my historical lack of knowledge and my role on this podcast is the person who everybody else knows more than in any given conversation, uh, <laughs> quite keenly right now. Um, I felt it keenly with uh, Dave in, in in Charlemagne, and I felt it quite keenly with Daniel in in morality as well. Right, But what I think is, this is one of the interesting things, and where I think the the slavery thing works very well in fantasy battle, mm-hmm. in that Drakari take slavery and they strip away any possible moral reason for it. There's There's no for their own good. This is rapacious, hideous torment. And I think that that's, that represents quite a, a British 1980s reaction to... Perhaps an American narrative of the uh, you know kind of the, the beautiful South, and there were things which were noble about it—the lost cause and all that kind of stuff, the Gone with the Wind kind mm-hmm. of things—which we 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 see over here. And then you get to the Drakari, and in that analogy, slavery as an as, as a direct equivalence falls apart in a big fucking way, because you're talking <laughs> about morality.
1: Yes, it does. And
0: yeah. here, you very rightly said. Slaves are food in Drukhari. Yeah. They are absolutely 100% necessary for continuing life, which is categorically not true of chattel slavery in America in the 1800s. That's right. just a hard line where obviously my analogy goes, that slavery analogy, it carries to a point, and beyond that point, you've got to let that go right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I'm not going to be here going, well, actually, you know, the the plantation owners are, are, it's necessary for them to fit. No, 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 no. That's So there is a sort of a point there where the analogy breaks down entirely. And where I think that slavery at that point becomes analogous to currency. You know, it's currency, it's food, it's the way that it's the oil that greases the wheels of society and keeps everything going and you can sort of say that you know american prosperity was built on slavery and built on the exploitation the exploitation of um of slaves and that created money and everything since that is built on that foundations of of the slave the torments of the slaves and therefore in the end all money is blood money but i don't think GW are thinking that deeply about this to be honest that's that's <laughs> yeah, I, I and think I, we're
1: taking it a bit further than they ever did in their planning meetings <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah can you
0: can you imagine it that they're like you're just good in the few others around the table and someone starts going into this sort of yeah this, this anti-slavery ranting and talking about blood money and they're going like <laughs> dial it back a bit
1: well and, and can't and can't you hear it in his voice too he's just like now hear me out <laughs> <laughs> well but on the other hand, though, I mean, there is a thing, and this is what's interesting, is that when you look at the examination of, of slavery, especially if it's done by people that are living in former colonies, you know, if you look at uh, uh, historians in the Caribbean, right? So you have, um, there are historians like, uh, oh, his first name's escaping me. They, they just refer to it as the Williams thesis. I mean, they talk about, um, he wrote it in like 1944 and he was, I mean, this guy was like 30 years ahead of his time, but he was examining how um, he was in, God, I want to say he was in Haiti. Uh, I'm blanking, I'm blanking on, on where he was at. He was in the Caribbean though. And the main thing that he was pointing out was that he was saying that capitalism, in order to grow when it did needed slave labor, when you're looking at the early parts of it, if you're looking at, you know, just classic triangular trade, right, so you're looking at uh, uh, sugarcane, it requires a tremendous amount of, all these cash crops required a tremendous amount of of uh, labor, and at the time, you know, it, the only way to do it from a cost-effective standpoint was slavery. Um, cotton is also another extremely labor-intensive project, and until those things get mechanized, slave labor was the only way to do it at that point, in a way that was cost-effective. And the, the what William the argument that Williams made and other historians have made was that slave labor was was a necessary component in order for european powers to actually uh, is for harvesting raw materials for european powers to actually have the materials they needed to push industry
0: and become industrialized countries and so they they yeah so capitalism is at its root exploitation of something and in this case slaves and workers
1: well and and to be clear too i mean in case anybody's like flipping their lid or i'm applying for another job um as a history teacher somewhere else and they get it they they're listening to this i mean that's the whole thing too is that is exploitation in capitalism isn't always a terrible thing like if you have employees you need to be able to if you're going to make money from the like unless you're breaking even paying your employees you are exploiting by definition you're exploiting your employees but the person doing the the investing is getting paid also for their um their risk that they're putting if that makes any sense so i mean this isn't to say but i mean outright slavery of course i think we can all agree is it's a whole
0: nother moral bucket
1: it it is when we say the word exploitation and we 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 have a very evil and negative connotation of it slavery is is the worst form of it
0: yes yeah by far absolutely okay so we've gone down a hell of a rabbit hole there um (laughs) So the uh, the Dark Eldor in Fifth Edition. Um, where were we? Oh boy! So we were talking about the yeah, you'd gone. Down, is... You started off by going down the um, the vect rabbit hole, and then that went yes. into slavery, and then into Marxist critical theory.
1: So with this whole mess that we've just gone into with slavery and all of the moral justifications and mental gymnastics that you know colonizing powers have had to do to try to explain how they're doing it. When we look at Camorans, they have the ultimate get out of jail free in that they never have to go to jail for it because they are not guided by they, they aren't guided in the least by some sort of a categorical imperative where it's wrong to do things. They are their am, their amorality and I don't know, they to me they strike me as the ultimate they're not even utilitarians because the utilitarian is like is weighing the consequences of their decision. Camorans aren't doing that. If they're doing it, they're weighing it in a way that it is only about the blowback they'll receive and if they're going to have to fight more or do whatever the thing is. So they are, they're sort of the ultimate expression of nihilism, if that makes any sense, where it's not even, it's, they don't have to, it doesn't even occur to them to explain themselves because they don't view they don't view any of the slaves that they bring in any of this stuff if you if you view them they don't wrestle with the same thing where oh you are you know as as you do with slavery where you're like well this is another human being like they might look a little different than me but in the end they're human camorans don't even it doesn't even occur to them it doesn't have to occur to them in this you know because they're food they're just they're they're a raw resource and in viewing things as I mean, this is this is the antithesis of the categorical imperative where human beings, you know, Kant argued that you have to view human beings as an end and not a means because they also have their own needs. The Comorans don't even have to do that. They are the ultimate free market uh, because they aren't constrained by any sort of morality. And it just allows their society to flow. the only The only consideration that they have to have is overstepping their power and... Uh, being taken over or not watching their back correctly. And it, it's where it makes them interesting because if they had morality, then they would have these inner turmoils and things like that. And the closest thing that I ever saw in any of the books was, uh, Braden Campbell had a book called Tantalus, right? And it was about this this uh, person who had fought in the arenas and worked his way up. And the closest thing you see to any type of a, he doesn't have like a moral struggle. He's just tired from the fight and tired from
0: scrapping and that's it. He doesn't have any of the other hangups, so. mm well, you'll be pleased to hear that uh, Daniel agrees with you that the Jokari are about nihil- pure nihilism. That's the, that's almost word for word, the um, the phrase he used. I knew I liked uh, that guy. Yeah, <laughs>
1: he he was always a great guy in the the Patreon group back in the day with the uh, Splintermite and always had great things. And uh, yeah, he's one of, he's one of the voices or the, one of the, the the posters and voices that I missed.
0: Mm, no, absolutely. Um, and so. With the, um with this lack, you know, gone through the morality of the slavery and type of food, now we're talking about the society which they construct off the exploitation of that food. And so you've got the cabals, which you've already gone into in a fair amount of detail about sort of corporate, allegedly meritocratic, but largely hereditary and Infighting is as much part of their society as as actually external fighting, which is a theme among all the factions more and more that I'm seeing. Right. We we drastically undervalue the amount of civil war which goes on in 40k, um, and I think GW does in its portrayals. Actually, it's it's not very good at portraying internal strife. They even shy away a little bit of strife between the um, the various Eldari factions a lot of the time Mm -hmm. so that's one aspect the cabals and the witch cults who you can fairly easily port onto that idea of them as the the entertainment industry they also have Mm -hmm. that feeding the masses and sort of like trickling down just enough of the pain to keep people going so that that sort of high amount of of torment which is available to the people at the top and just just enough in their from their arenas is going down to the masses to keep them alive but no more than necessary right um so that is a yeah sort of a fair a, so i think i think when we talked before you talked about them as as the sport it the sports industry the entertainment industry mm-hmm. and yeah the bread and circuses i mean it's 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 a fairly straightforward analogy there And then we're on to the covens. And before, when you're talking about their introduction, they are very much that nightmare doll idea of flesh smiths and torment. And it's a real creepy fairy tale vibe to them. But where GW have done this interesting thing with them, and this is that blue collar aspect, which you're talking about, is that they are the economic engine. And... I'm afraid I'm going to slightly undermine your blue collar uh, thing there by I'm going to say they're more like the the military industrial complex. They are the high level operatives who it doesn't matter to them who's in power because they've the people in power have to come to them. And no matter what happens in their society, the wheels are going to keep on grinding. So they're in this kind of position almost outside society where they benefit whoever's in charge, and whatever happens. And so they can be more or less indifferent to almost everything that's going on in Camorran society right
1: they almost strike me too I mean it's you can draw parallels too to like the I'm trying to think of things that people like to complain about big pharmaceutical right so they're gonna say oh they're kind of the big pharma of of Kimora and it's true because they what's interesting is they have the answer kind of like big pharmaceutical does to things that should be changed at a societal level if we're trying to create a healthier society right so if we look at it was interesting i was talking to my doctor and he was just saying he was like look you're an american all americans like it's not a matter of preventing heart disease it's trying to walk back things that have already happened like we have foods that are ridiculous and flavors that shouldn't exist and sodium levels that shouldn't exist and with pharmaceutical companies, you do have ways like, oh well, I'll just take Lipitor now. I don't have to worry about my cholesterol or whatever. You know, whatever the sort of thing is. Like, they have the fix to the various parts, and they've made themselves completely indispensable to the way society works. Like, if you go and you are um, warring too much in a campaign, they have the answer. They can regrow things. They can. Um, if you've overextended yourself or you need to take somebody out, they can come up with the, the super unique uh, way for them to die that's going to give you some street cred and things like that. So I think the blue collar thing, it, you're right, it is a misnomer, but it's,
0: their power is, it's almost... Yeah, I don't want to tell you you're hopping wrong because they are also mm-hmm. that. But again, being slightly provocative and just like poking you a little bit mm-hmm. on that. Oh, um, well, no, no, it, You know, I, I feel that there's yeah. the you can, you can take... You can take them one way, or you can take them the other. And I think, for the purposes mm-hmm. of this argument, in if if my analogy holds, then they they have that sort of industrialist billionaire kind of quality that uh, that that blue collar doesn't quite cover.
1: Yeah, I mean, because if you think of the cabals as the actual fighting military, I mean, they can't do it without defense contractors that are building all the sorts of things, and so that's where. They are. They're kind of. They're. They're kind of a weird amalgamation of. Of arms, like you're saying. I mean, they. They are the industrial military complex. They're also sort of the, in a weird way, they're sort of the um the technological drive that keeps the, that keeps all of the economic engine of of Kamora going, and, yeah, it's interesting. I think. I think. I think where why like I was saying where I think that my my blue collar thing is is more of a misnomer is like I said in their projection of power is that. They don't have to flash I mean it's it's true hegemony and that they don't have to flash it, they don't have to flaunt it because it's just understood. Absolutely. That I mean as to where the Archons and especially especially the the um the witch cults, I mean, they have to constantly flaunt and remind people that they're at the top. They have to remind you know the flash and display the greatness versus the the Covens. People just
0: know, yeah, you don't you you don't mess with them. It it ends badly. Conspicuous um showing off uh, extravagance is that that's the witch cult is you know an ex- uh, an absolutely fantastic showy kill is that much more valuable than right. just lining people up and shooting them in the head right. like it's 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 part and parcel of of their um, their way of being the, a conversation i had with daniel we didn't cover it in that episode was about the inari and mm-hmm. to go back to that it's, it's very interesting is that um, initially, with the Inari, there was this idea that you you couldn't include Homunculus Coven troops in in right. in with the Inari, and and I didn't understand that initially. But looking at it through this lens, it makes perfect sense because the Inari absolutely give a different <laughs> way out. Yeah, they are um, as we talked before about Vect showing giving the the narrative that in order to succeed in this society you need to work within its rules and work your way up to the the apex you don't work go outside the pyramid right Um, and the inari are a very very threatening um, a very very threatening faction to that hegemony because they do offer a true difference in that the main pain is no longer necessary right um For the society to operate, and so right. it's no wonder that the covens are so adamantly opposed in their soul to um well, yeah, they don't have souls, but but you know what I mean, yes,
1: well, because I mean it would be if all of a sudden, let's say that solar was fifty times more efficient than it was, and they were just going to give it to everybody for free, the oil industry is going to have some issues with that, coal, you know coal is going to have issues with that, all you know any sort of other other forms, and so not to compare covens to oil and coal, but, I mean, they are the standing power. They are the standing way that things get done. They are the standing infrastructure that allows things to go. And so if you offer any sort of an alternative, of course they're going to fight them tooth and nail because it absolutely undermines their entire operation.
0: And as you say, they've had this complacent position where they're the grease and everyone Mm -hmm. just needs to come to them and they don't need to show off because they're there. And you go, (laughs) whoever whichever this cabal is, they've still got to come to us.
1: Right. Right.
0: And then this is where I think the you know the, the, the idea that of Kamora as a satire it both it falls away in a really pleasing way for me because it, it shows that the Drakari are their own fleshed out thing. They're not they don't depend on a real world analogy. You don't have to map one on one. Right. They have their own motivations, they have their own stories. As new factions like the Inari come in the game, these the three different um internal uh segments of Drakari society react to them in their internally consistent ways. And I've said it before in um in 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 an episode and I'll undoubtedly say it again, is this I think is the reason why forty K has become this Behemoth within the wargaming community is it's it is it's it's full of cool dumb stuff, and it's cool. You know, the, the idea of of pain engines like coming out of the webway and like have these sort right. of siphons like enormous mosquitoes. I mean, it's right. just a really creepy cool idea. Yeah. But without this structure behind it, underlying it, and the years of thinking and and planning and to make it consistent and internally satisfying it wouldn't have survived. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm, I'm I'm arguing against myself that it's a society that, that it's an actual satire anymore, but I do think that when GW are releasing things, there's always, they'll, they'll always just kind of like maybe reach, reach for little bits of America and, and put them in there. So for future, for future Dark Eldar and Dracari releases, that's definitely something I'm going to be keeping an eye out for. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. So, having having got to the end and going, I don't think it's as it's quite as clean as I suggested it was at the beginning. Um, I think that's a reasonable place to uh, for, for me to wrap up. Were there any sort of further things which you wanted to bring up or um, things to to talk about?
1: No, that's it. It wraps up well for me too because I mean it is it. it I mean, of course, this was an exercise of applying an idea. And seeing where the evidence fit if that makes sense versus analyzing all the evidence and coming to a coming to a conclusion so but i mean that is the beauty as you said of satire is that it's designed to pick out pick at key elements and key source spots crank them to 11 or 13 or whatever your your amp wants to go to and really playing around with them so yeah no and i i just thank you for having me on here because this is a this is a topic that i know eric would 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 love to discuss on lost of the nails but man we eventually we have to do that adeptus titanicus episode that we keep kicking down the road (laughs) that can't become a running gag we're like no really next time we're gonna do it so (laughs)
0: um no so i mean the only last kind of slightly outside the the actual main topic was do you think that this discussion or topics we've discussed within it would change the way you hobby or influence the way you hobby at all give you sort of any ideas of how you might apply it to the things you do?
1: Ooh. Well, it's hard because it's a hard question to answer because I have... My art Painted Jukari army is massive. So I'm not sure where I would actually take it and change it. I mean, if anything, it would probably make me want to paint more coven events, some or coven models, if that somehow was possible. <laughs> so, but as far as like looking at viewing them I'm trying to think if anything I would say it probably would just make me want to paint my archons and just flash them up just a little bit more (laughs) you know of the uh (laughs) to kind of do I that's what I love I mean the last archon that I that I modeled up that I was getting ready to paint was very much going to be the you know the modeled on Commodus uh character from Gladiator uh the the fake tough guy you know that really wants to show you know that's really trying to prove and over project and those sorts of things but you know really trying to play up on the no really I'm here because I deserve it you know but at the same time was it's just a little too flashy and you know his uh the hilt on his uh on his on his blade is just a little too fancy for his own good for somebody who had actually earned it sort of a thing so
0: sure yeah I mean I think this topic is a little esoteric because it's about the historical portrayals of Eldar and Dark Elves sort of going back so it's not something that I've Feel with the small drukari kind of uh, contingents which I've got that is is necessary kind of play right in, but I definitely love thinking about it and it's made me understand the inari more, and mm-hmm. I would love in future for Games Workshop to decide what they're going to do with it because my impression is that they brought them in they wanted to do something big and daring and then they've been backing away from it slowly ever since they've just sort of put it down <laughs> and they've been stepping back and i i love this idea of of them as a threat to Camorran society in the way that they aren't to harlequin or um craftwell society because in the end yeah there's the internal powers of the Craftworlds, but you don't have this factionalism and this. You don't have this one group like the Coven's, yeah, are who absolutely depend on there not being an alternative. Right. Well, I feel like the Craftworlders are looking for an alternative. They're looking for salvation, right. Somewhere, and the Harlequins are very much doing that. So, um, I kind of feel like as a as a hook as a story hook. For civil wars and things like that, it's it's a really nice one, but I, I, I don't think it will affect my modelling or anything like that. Right, right. So yeah, fairly short hobbying section uh, today. <laughs> um, I think the Necron one. I've I've been having ideas about Necron armies ever since that one, so that's going to be a long one. Um, but Brian, thank you so much for indulging my uh, my podcast project uh, by coming on. Um, you've been a delight. It's Always fantastic speaking to you. Uh, so I just wanted to say thank you.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me on. I, I remember when you when you pitched the idea of the show, I was just like, you are, I mean, you were on you were on Splinter Mind one time and when you were on, you were such a natural. And I think I've told you this where I just said, you know, timing and figuring out how to steer a conversation is the hardest thing and asking the right questions to keep the conversation moving. And the, the types of questions that you pitched to me in this episode makes me want to, really it really has me looking forward to listening to all of the other ones as well. I'm well, I started listening to your first episode already but uh but um yeah it, this this is this is going to be a great food for thought sort of show and I know a lot of people that do other things on their shows that you can pick the brains of for expertise and things like that are going to want to come on because this is this is the uh th- this is the fun little exercise sort of thing that a lot of people wish they could do and thank you for providing a forum to do it.
0: Oh, it was great and honestly it wasn't just you, but you saying a couple of times just in in conversation casually, oh yeah you you should do a podcast, or you know we'll we'll have Tom on and he really needs to have a he really needs to have an idea, and this idea was sort of percolating in my mind for quite a long time. I didn't really have a unique take um mm. and I feel like there's a lot of different podcasts which are doing a lot of different things, and just this kind of random thought splurge. Uh, idea was not something that, that anyone else was doing. So that's why I decided to to jump in with both feet in the end.
1: <laughs> well, anytime you ask a person who's a Dracari nut, who did a Dracari podcast for six and a half years, teaches history and loves sticky and ugly questions and loves to just wade straight into those, like, yeah, you're going to... you, you uh,
0: I, I will take that bait every single time. So thank <laughs> It's <you>. catnip <laughs> for you. Okay. So, and on that note, we're going to head off. So... Anyone who is stimulated to get in touch and who is motivated to have a response, honestly, that would be the dream. Um, I would love people to come on and tell us we're wrong. Tell us that we've got this totally wrong, that we've missed this topic, because frankly, that's win-win, because then you're providing me with more content. Um, And if you want to, then do get in touch. It's 40 Curious with a K. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram under that and if you want to then just send us a message and I will get back to you as soon as I can Um, obviously busyness family work university work and all that kind of thing allowing but I will get back to you as soon as possible so that would be the dream I'd love to hear from you so on that note uh goodbye and thank you